Thank you, Keith. Well, at this time, if you've got a kiddo who's in third grade or under and you'd like them to go to their classroom down the hall while we move into our time for the sermon in our service, they can do that now. There are, some of them are very anxious to get there, as you can see, uh, running through the back of the room. Uh, Matt Webb's back there in the blue Redeemer Kids shirt. He'll lead them down the hall, show them where they need to go as they engage in a lesson as we move into our sermon. But before we get there, I just want to say a word of welcome to those of you who are with us. If you're new with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've joined us. If you're online, we're glad you're tuned in from wherever you are. Um, When you came in, there should have been a card like this somewhere around you. On one side of that card is a place for prayer requests. Uh, If there's things we can pray with you or for you about, it would be our honor to do that. other side of that card is a place for a little information about yourself so we can send you some information about us. Uh, answer any questions you might have. If you fill out one of these cards, there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. We'd love to connect with you. If you're online, you can also find that same information on the homepage of our website uh, where you can fill out prayer requests and also drop us a line uh, with any questions that you may have. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, turn with me to Psalm 42 is where we're going to be today. Psalm 42, as we continue to work our way through this series of messages entitled Exhale, learning how to exhale theology in light of the reality that we're constantly inhaling, living in a fallen, broken world. Psalm 42 is where we're going to be this morning, and we'll read verses 1 to 11 together. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a copy in front of you to follow along, feel free to follow along there. Psalm 42, we'll pick up in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise of multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon to Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is God's Word. It's undeniable that over the course of these last several years, we've lived in an anxious age, an anxious world. Uh, In light of the pandemic that we began to experience in 2020, all the social unrest that we've experienced, the political unrest that we've experienced, uh, there has been a a, a swell of anxiety and depression that has risen within our culture that's undeniable. In fact, one study published in October of 2021, it was co-authored by dozens of researchers across the globe, and it looked at the prevalence 
of depressive and anxiety disorders in 204 countries and in territories during 2020 when the pandemic was at its worst, when we still didn't really know what we were dealing with. The study authors also discussed the historical data on global depression and anxiety prevalence providing context from the pre-pandemic period. In other words, they compared the data they were collecting in 2020 with the data they collected prior to the pandemic to compare those things together and have a benchmark. And some of the highlights that came out of that study are as follows. Among both genders, male and female, the prevalence of anxiety disorder went up 25.6% worldwide during the pandemic. And for depressive disorders, the prevalence increased by 27.6%. They said there was a clear connection between the severity of the pandemic outbreak and the prevalent increases of the two disorders. For example, the countries and regions hardest hit by COVID showed the highest increases of depression and anxiety among the population. And perhaps maybe the most interesting, the authors of the study say, is that prevalence rates for men and women both before and after, or both before and during COVID, I'm sorry, were progressively higher for each age group. For example, they said men and women in the age bracket of 20 to 39 had the highest rates, which were significantly higher than the rates of depression and anxiety for men and women aged 40 to 49. Men and women aged 40 to 49 had higher rates than those 50 to 59, and so on and so forth, up to 90 years old. Perhaps because the older we get, the more we learn how to deal with difficulty. Maybe. I don't know. But that's, what the, that's, the, that's the study numbers in and of themselves. And as you look around, perhaps you know someone who's been impacted or affected by anxiety or has been impacted or affected by depression. Perhaps you are that person who has seen since the rising of anxiety in your heart and a deepening of depression within your soul. Right? None of us is exempt from it. Right? So all of us have experienced some degree of highs and lows, of depression or anxiety in our lives. And some of us, right, live with it day after day. Okay? And so the reality is that we need to get a handle on this as a church because mental health is not only affecting those who are outside of our walls, but those inside as well. And so this morning, I want us to, as we turn to Psalm 42, I want us to see what it teaches us about this reality. If this is the reality we're inhaling, the rise of anxiety, the rise of depression, what truths do we need to exhale in light of that? And the first thing I think Psalm 42 teaches us about the realities of depression and anxiety is this, that they're connected to distress and affliction in our lives. Now, what's being described in Psalm 42 in this particular passage, I believe, is about of circumstantial depression, not clinical depression and anxiety. There's a difference between those two things. Let me be very clear this morning. Very clear. Listen, I am not a physician. I am not a psychologist. I am not a psychiatrist. I have stayed at a Holiday Inn Express before, but that does not make me any of those things that I just listed. But perhaps in the vein of... very long-term vein in pastoral ministry in the church throughout its history. I don't see myself as a physician of the body, but as a physician of the soul. That's how pastors functioned in the church for centuries. And so this morning, I can't speak to many of the clinical aspects of it. But clinical depression is a mental health disorder characterized by persistent depressed mood or loss of interest in daily activities that significantly impairs daily function in life. And it could possibly be caused by a combination of biological, physiological, and social sources of distress. 
But increasingly, research shows these factors may cause changes in the brain chemistry, brain function, including altered activity of certain neural pathways or neural circuits in the brain. And oftentimes, treatment is not only through therapy and talk, talk therapy and counseling, but also through medication, which helps reconnect those neural pathways and reconnect those neural uh, circuits within the brain. That's clinical depression, clinical anxiety disorders, but there's also circumstantial distress and anxiety in our lives that's caused by distress and affliction in daily life when we get anxious or we feel down and sometimes circumstantial depression or circumstantial anxiety can cause us to feel very very down and very very worried but when our circumstances begin to move in a different direction whenever we come out of that distress then our mood follows along with it we're able to rebound and resume normal daily activity that's more circumstantial depression and anxiety. And I believe what's being described in Psalm 42 is the latter and not the former. So what I'm going to say to you this morning is this, before I ever get into the text, is that if you're seeing a doctor for clinical depression, do not take what I say this morning and say, I need to stop seeing my doctor and get off my medication. Right? If you have diagnosed anxiety disorder. Do not take what I'm saying this morning and say, I need to stop seeing my psychiatrist. Not, I need to stop going to counseling and working through the challenges that I'm facing. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? I want to I tend more to the soul than necessarily the body, the brain chemistry. Okay? So is that clear? All right. Now, one commentator said the background of this passage, they said this, it may be sickness, it may be exile from the sacred space of the temple, but regardless, the text, he says, along with a number of psalms throughout the psalms, use highly figurative languages, the language that could apply to a variety of life settings. In other words, we don't know the exact context this psalm is being written out of, but you can imagine that context being your context. Right? You can imagine it being the waywardness of a child. You can imagine it being a family trial with involving legal issues. You can imagine it being an illness or a sickness or a disease that you have experienced or that someone that you love is experiencing right now. You can imagine it being marital strife and difficulty that might lead you to this position or place. Any type of suffering. Right, which I think is so helpful for us because it doesn't, we don't have to pigeonhole this into one particular area of life. Because describe any area of life in which we're experiencing affliction or any area of our life in which we're experiencing distress. Now, the psalmist in verses 1 to 4, he describes himself as being in a spiritual desert. He's like a deer that's seeking out a clear mountain stream, right? You see those mountain streams full of rocks and boulders that just flow down from the snow melt and they produce this crystal clear water. Right, that you could feel like you could just scoop up and drink because it's so clear and so pure. Right? That's the psalmist says, as a deer pants for that kind of stream, my soul it has a longing and a panting after God. But all that deer is able to find, and all the psalmist is able to find, is a dry creek bed in West Texas. Right? There's a spiritual desert that he's describing himself to be in. And he describes himself as one who wants to be filled and satisfied by the water that God provides for his soul. But all he has in his present to drink are his tears. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. 
Now, can you imagine that type of condition to just be weeping 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 352 weeks a year, right? I almost said 365 weeks a year, but that would be a really long year, right? Can you imagine yourself in that position, weeping day and night, thirsting for something to satisfy your soul, but all you can taste are the salty tears that are running down your cheek? He describes himself to be one who remembers past times of sweet fellowship with God and his, and his people in the worship in the temple, probably at the points of high Jewish festivals like Passover or the Feast of Booths. He can remember these times of celebration as he went with the people of God into the temple to celebrate deliverance from Egypt and how God provided in the wilderness. But these festive and joy, joyful occasions, they're a distant memory for him now. Then in, then in the latter part of the psalm, in verses 6 to 10, the psalmist likens the circumstances he is in and the suffering he's experiencing to drowning underneath the waves and breakers of the sea as he gasps for air. He says, all your waves and your breakers pass over me. He says the same thing Jonah says in Jonah chapter 2 after he's thrown into the sea by the sailors in order to calm it. This is a very different type of water than the psalmist longs for in verses 1 to 2. That water is a gentle flowing stream. This water is chaotic, foamy seas. Very different. And oftentimes in the Bible, whenever you see the description of waves or of foam or of seas that are raging, it's, the, it's, it's a figurative language used to describe chaos erupting around someone. That he's in turmoil. He says he knows God is present in verse 8, both day and night, that his steadfast love, he's a covenant-keeping God. As he weeps and he does not eat anything other than his tears, I know God is present. He confesses God's covenant love and loyalty in verse 8, but then in verse 9, he wonders why God has forgotten him. Now, forgetting doesn't mean that God intellectually, cognitively forgot that he existed. Okay, that, that somehow he forgot that he made this guy, right? Because God's omniscient, he knows everything. But oftentimes in the Bible, the words for forgot and the words for remember describe more than a cognitive activity. To remember someone was to act on their account or act on their behalf. And to forget someone was to fail to act on their account or on their behalf. And the psalmist says, God, I believe that you still remember that I'm here, but why haven't you acted? Why haven't you shown up? Why haven't you delivered me as of yet? He calls God his rock. In other words, the stable foundation for his life. And yet he's experiencing oppression from his enemies and the words that are spoken to him wound him with mortal wounds as they taunt him regarding his God's absence. Then in verses 5, 6, and 11, the psalmist uses two words to describe his internal condition. He says he is downcast in verses 5, 6, and 11. And then in verses 5 and 11, he says he's in turmoil. He repeats that frequently. That word downcast, listen, it literally means, it literally means this, to sink down in the Hebrew. And listen, that is exactly what depression feels like. It feels exactly like you're, like you're in a, 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 a pit of, of, of quicksand. And you're just, you're being sucked beneath. 
You're being pulled down. Right? That your outlook on life, that your internal composition is sinking, sinking further and further. So you can't see good around you oftentimes whenever you're in depression, experiencing depression. That's why you lose interest in all kinds of daily activities because you can't find anything that brings you joy any longer. And the psalmist says, that's where I'm at. I'm downcast. I'm sinking to the bottom. I mean, he says... He's in turmoil. And that word literally means, listen, I find this very intriguing in the Hebrew, to roar or to experience turbulence. And that's exactly what anxiety feels like. Like there's a roaring in your, in your ears constantly. And there's a turbulence in your soul. Right? Those of you who have flown, particularly on international flights, and you get up over the oceans, or you, you fly in or around storms, you know what turbulence is like. I experienced probably the most extreme turbulence I've ever experienced in my life in Russia about 15, 20 years ago. Boarding a plane through the butt, you know, one of those old planes. Okay, and I mean, I don't know how, when the last safety check was performed on that thing. Right, so we go up into the plane, we get up into the sky, and I, I kid you not, I'm clinging to the armrest, praying that Jesus come quickly, because I thought we were going down, because that plane was just shaking, right? You feel that drop in the pit of your stomach every time you hit one of those pockets, and you just, that's what anxiety feels like. It's turbulence in your soul. It's a roaring that you can't shut off in your ears and the psalmist says i'm anxious because of all the chaos the waves and the breakers that are crashing over me and i am sinking down because i feel like i've been cut off from the very source of life god himself now what i've just described some of you have experienced and i know that because i've experienced it as well I've experienced these realities for most of my life. As a teenager, I struggled with depression and anxiety. My parents oftentimes said, if you don't, if you don't snap out of this, we're going to take you to see somebody. It was in a day in which mental health was not something that you talked about very frequently. But looking back, I believe I experienced clinical depression most of my adult life. As I tried to wade my way through being passed over for job opportunities. The very first ministry I ever had. I was in a church, First Baptist Church, Pineville, Louisiana. Okay? I was an interim student pastor there. And man, God was doing a work there and we were reaching kids in the community and yet the power brokers in the church decided they wanted someone else to come in and take over that ministry. And when the pastor and his wife sat down with Karen and I to tell us that they had made that decision, I wept all the way home. And I struggled for a year to rebound from that. Some of you like, well, get over it. That's the point, I couldn't. Struggling through seminary education, feeling like it was going to be a never-ending battle. 
Eight years it took me to fulfill a master's degree of 120 hours. Multiple times I tried to change my degree program. Multiple times I tried to quit, but I had friends who wouldn't let me. Some of them are in this room this morning, and they're smiling, right? Because I felt like I was just spinning my wheels and going nowhere, stuck in the belly of a, a big, massive machine at, in an institution that was educating me and an institution which I was serving in a local church at that time. Caring for my daughter after she was born with a significant cranial birth defect, which required seven surgeries over the course of seven years and financial hit after financial hit after financial hit. And then leading what was at the time a dying church and arriving from a previous ministry post to this one eight years ago. And it was through that valley that my wife finally said to me, I can't remember the last time you were happy. And of course I argued. That's what I do. I said, but there was this time, and there was this time, and there was this time. But what I, even as I said those words, I realized that what I was saying was that there was no just baseline in my life, of being able to respond to difficulty. That's what led me to counseling. That's what led me to a physician. That's what led me to medication. And I tell you what, after a couple of months of counseling and medication, I felt like I was coming out of a fog that I had been in since I was 13. That's why I stand here this morning to say to you, don't take anything I'm about to say as... Shannon's saying, I don't need medication. Shannon's saying, I don't need doctors. Shannon's saying, I don't need counseling. I've experienced it myself. I've walked that road. Because distress and affliction causes depression and anxiety in my life. But I believe what we have here in Psalm 42, in the description of the psalmist's situation, doesn't stop there because I think he gives us a pattern for responding to it at the level of our souls. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning is like, what do we do about this? Particularly if we find ourselves in a season of circumstantial depression and anxiety or, right, I'll tell you this, medication and therapy are helpful, right, but they're not going to address the spiritual side of the reality in your life. You still need that aspect as well. And so how do we respond to this? And I believe there's a pattern the psalmist lays down for us of preaching to ourselves. And I would say to you this morning is that if you're going to exhale theology in the face of the reality of depression and anxiety in your life, you've got to learn to preach to yourself. See, in our text, there are two places where the psalmist breaks from describing his situation. And he begins to speak to himself. Now, before you assign a modern diagnosis of schizophrenia, to the psalmist, okay? Remember, he's speaking to himself. He's not, he's not answering himself, okay? There's only one person doing the speaking here. But in verses 5 and 6, and again in verse 11, he repeats the same exact refrain to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You see, what he's doing here is he's preaching to himself. And what he's preaching, I believe, there's four points here that he's preaching. You're like, whoa, whoa, we're going to be here a while. No, we're not. He's going to be quick. 
Four points that he's preaching that provide a pattern for us and how we ought to talk to ourselves. That's what he's doing. He's talking to himself. Preaching to himself. And there's a pattern for us. And the first thing that we need to learn to preach to ourselves, the way we need to learn to preach to ourselves is this, is to argue with yourself based on ultimate reality. Argue with yourself based on ultimate reality. Look, the psalmist says, knowing what I know to be true about God, especially the truth of God's steadfast love, which is embedded in verse 8. God's covenant love, His chesed, as they would have said in the Hebrew. His loyal love, His never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Then why am I sinking down and why is my soul so turbulent? If this is true, God, why am I seeking, sinking and why is everything roaring? Why do, I, why do I give in to the turmoil? Why do I give in to the sinking? See, what he's doing is he's arguing on the basis of ultimate reality that God is a good, a loyal, a loving, a faithful, and a covenant-keeping God. And he's revealed that by his actions in human history and as recorded in Scripture. So he's arguing with the way that he feels based on what he knows. Right? He's arguing with his feelings based on his knowledge. What he's seen God do. What he's heard about God doing in other people's lives. What he's read on the pages of the Pentateuch about God's actions, God's intervention, God's deliverance, God's salvation. That God has shown up time and time and time and time and time again. And because I know that, because I know that, I'm going to argue with that truth against the way that I feel second thing that he says is you or the second thing we see in the pattern is this command yourself to hope in God see the psalmist responds to his question on both occasions with this command hope in God and that word hope is a verb and it's an imperative in the text you know what that means it's a command the psalmist is telling himself to do something And what is he telling himself to do? To set his hope on God and God alone. Now in both the Old and the New Testaments, the word hope is synonymous with the word to wait. In other words, the psalmist is saying to himself, you can't give up waiting on God. You can't abandon waiting on the Lord to show up. He will be there. He will act. The waters of the streams, they will flow again. The seas, they will die down at the sound of His voice. He's commanding himself to hope in God, to cling to God, and to wait on God. But at times, listen, at times, in our depression and in our anxiety, we get tired of waiting on the Lord, and so we may shift our hope onto something or someone else. I know this to be true, not only cognitively, but experientially. So we may find hope in substances. We may turn to alcohol or illicit illegal drugs because we're trying to deaden or numb the feeling. Like we want something, we want to feel something different than sinking. We want to feel something different than the turbulence. We want peace and so we may look for it in a bottle or a needle. Or we place our hope in things. In possessions, in acquisitions, in purchases. I've experienced that in my own life. Bear my soul with you a little bit this morning. 
right? Because there is, isn't there, a little dopamine hit every time you swipe that card somewhere to buy something that you really want or to go someplace you really want to go. But what happens sometimes because we grow weary of waiting on the Lord, we just keep swiping and we 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 keep swiping swiping because that first hit wears off quickly and we want another. It's almost like an addiction. So we find hope in things. Or we place our hope in other people. Believing we're going to rely on them to pull us out of our depression and our anxiety. And at times God may use other people to speak words of truth and words of life and to be present, have a ministry of presence in our lives when we're going through the valley, whenever we feel like we're sinking. Listen, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that every person you will ever meet is going to fail you at some juncture in which you need them. God is the only one who will not. Or we may find hope in fantasy. Those who struggle with depression and anxiety, they may turn to pornography. They may turn to video games. Now, I'm not saying video games is an is a evil in and of itself. Pornography is. Video games are not. But both create a fantasy world in which you can live. And if you immerse yourself into that fantasy world, if you immerse yourself into that, It will break you. It will make you incapable of facing the hard realities of real life. So the psalmist says, don't give up waiting on the Lord to show up because He will. Hope in Him. Listen, in your depression and your anxiety, you've got to command yourself to hope in God and not stop waiting on Him and begin to wait on other things to provide what only He can. Third, third, we've got to tell ourselves to worship our way through anxiety and depression. Worship our way through anxiety and depression. The psalmist goes on to give the reason for this hope that he's commanding himself to have. And he says the reason is for... I shall again praise Him. He says, in the same way that I used to go with the people of God, in procession into the presence of God, with songs of praise, I'm going to do that again. I'm going to do it again, and again, and again. Now, for the Old Testament saint, he was thinking of going to the temple. For us, it's thinking of coming to gather with God's people Sunday after Sunday in the church and sometimes even spending time in personal worship in our living room, in our dining room, in our study, in our car, in our backyard, on our swing, wherever it is, spending time in personal worship, corporate worship and personal worship. But I can tell you something, church, one of the... And I know this from experience as well. One of the last places you want to be sometimes whenever you feel like you're sinking and turbulence is rocking you back and forth is with other people in church. Because you feel like you're the only one who is that low. You feel like you're the only one who is that shaky. But I'm going to tell you something that is not true. And if all of us were to expose 
our souls this morning, you would find that more people than not in this room have walked through those doors feeling that exact same feeling. It's not true. And I'll tell you this. The best place you can be whenever you're experiencing depression and anxiety is in a place that is full of grace and full of truth in which grace and truth are sung over you even when you feel like you can't muster the breath to sing yourself. As a part of admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's why whenever I sit up here sometimes and then I get up here on Sundays to preach, sometimes I'll just say, man, I loved hearing you guys sing this morning. Because even those, in those moments and on those mornings when I don't feel like I can muster the breath in my lungs to sing, I hear other saints who are singing and declaring these truths and it encourages me. Even though, quite honestly, it may have been the last place I wanted to be that Sunday morning. Worship your way through these realities. Through the sinking and through the roaring. And then fourth, remind yourself that salvation belongs to the Lord. The psalmist goes on to describe God in the latter part of verses 5 and 11 as my salvation and my God. Notice the personal possessive pronoun, my. This is why the psalmist can argue based on ultimate reality. This is why the psalmist can put his hope in God. This is why the psalmist can have confidence of worshiping God in his temple again one day, because God is his salvation. God is his God. He has a personal covenant relationship with God. This is not some God, but my God. This is not a mindset that salvation will come from somewhere, deliverance will come from somewhere. I'm not sure where. The psalmist knows it's going to come from God. That's where salvation, that's where deliverance is going to come from, from him and him alone. So as Jonah says at the end of his prayer, he says, all your waves and breakers, they pass over me. But he gets to the very end of Jonah chapter 2, and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. My salvation, my God, that's who he is. And if you're in a covenant relationship with him this morning, listen church, one of the things that means... And you can say this. You can remind yourself of this. Because since salvation belongs to Him, this, is, this might be worth the trip. Since salvation belongs to Him, and it, it doesn't belong to how you feel. It doesn't. So you could be on the height of the mountain. And yet salvation still belongs to the Lord. And you could be at the valley, the pit, the bottom of the ocean, but salvation still belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to how you feel on a given day or in a given moment or at a given time. Now, if you're not in covenant relationship with God this morning, I want you to know you can be. See, God has shown time and time again that salvation indeed belongs to Him. And the most vivid, 
And the most ultimate way He's done this is through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. See, while the psalmist may be describing his own experience in Psalm 42, he might as well be describing the experience of Jesus Himself. See, the psalmist says, for yet I will again praise Him. There was something out ahead of the psalmist that helped him endure all the affliction and distress. And the author of Hebrews says it was for the joy set before him. That he knew one day he'd be back in the presence of the Father. Along with the redeemed of all the ages. And so what did he do as a, as a result? He endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He experienced the abandonment of his closest friends in his greatest hour of need. And as he wept and sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, his tears were his food in his anguish. He experienced the oppression of his enemies. As he was arrested, he was falsely charged and condemned to death by an unjust high priest and governor working together. His enemies put him under their thumb. Jesus experienced the taunts and mockings of the crowd. But they didn't say to him, where is your God? They said, if you are God, come down from there. And on the cross, all the waves and all the breakers of chaotic judgment of the wrath of God upon the sin of mankind, they fell over Jesus himself. And we're told that this is the way that God chose to deal with our deepest need. Not just deliverance from earthly enemies, but from eternal ones. And I tell you this morning, if you place your confidence, your faith, your trust, your dependence in Christ, you can enter into that covenant relationship with God. Jesus himself says, I've come to inaugurate a new covenant through the shedding of my blood, through the giving of my body. And if you place your trust in what he did for you, bearing your sin, fulfilling all righteousness on your behalf, living a life that you could not and dying the death that you should have, then you can enter in covenant relationship with God. You can know and experience His steadfast love, His covenant-keeping love that is with you day and night. You can worship your way through anxiety and depression because you know there's something that lies on the other side that is better and more glorious than you could ever imagine. And you can give up all other hopes to hope only in Him. Psalmist lays down a pattern for us and he says, preach to yourself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Why are you so turbulent? Why is the roaring so loud? Listen, avail yourself of all the means of God's common grace. But do not neglect. In, in what I mean by that is in therapy, in counseling, and in medication. But do not neglect the power of truth in the midst of your depression and your anxiety that comes straight out of God's Word. Preach it to yourself day after day after day. That's the fight of faith. And sometimes your hands are going to